If you're a founder building a company, you're going to eventually have to start hiring executives to help you scale. The people you bring into your leadership team can make or break your startup. I'm Nigel Robinson with Build Talent, and in each episode, we'll be speaking with a founder or expert as we discuss the art and science of hiring leaders, why it matters, and how you can keep up. Welcome to the Gradients Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome again to the Gradients Podcast. Today, I'm here with Jordan Fisher, founder and CEO of Standard AI. He comes out of a PhD in applied math, UC Santa Barbara, makes a stop at the SEC doing as a product manager for a next generation analytics suite of sorts, if if I'm understanding that right. And then found Standard AI in 2017. They've recently raised $150 million C from SoftBank's second vision fund making y'all the world's first autonomous checkout unicorn. As I understand it, you kind of have a lot of stores in the chamber ready to be deployed of, yeah, Standard AI makes an artificial intelligence platform that allows customers to grab items without having to go to a cashier. Basically, people go in, you don't have to wait in lines, you don't have to scan items, you just go and check out. And that's this like frictionless shopping experience. But we're very grateful to have them here. Thanks for joining, Jordan. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. And I guess you can call it a show, right? Podcast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, excited to be here. Excited to, to jam on on some things, all things hiring, all things team building. Yeah, so I always like to kind of start from the beginning and kind of the story mode. Like you don't meet a lot of casual thinkers getting PhDs in applied mathematics. Like kind of where are you in your journey at that point? Like what were you kind of aiming at something or were you just really in love with math? I guess we'll start there. Yeah, for sure. I mean... Even before applied math, probably most people don't know, but there's pure math and applied math are like the two major kind of disciplines in the mathematics community. And pure math is even more esoteric and unapplied, right? Like, right, yeah. The joke in in pure math is if there is an application for your the math that you're working on, that's it. Not pure enough. It's not pure enough. Like that's actually like a mark of shame, right? You're not far enough. The application should come a hundred years later, which does happen, right? Like there's all these these amazing advancements to happen. And everyone's like, why would you even care? And then a hundred years later, it's like, oh, that's the underpinning of a revolution in physics or in computer wow. science. Right? So it's like, you're way out there, but there's a beauty to math. As you go deep into it, it's something you can't explain to someone, but it's like, if you go deep into art or deep into music, there's undertones that you pick up on that the average person's just like, what? Like, <laughs> Yeah. I have a friend getting a PhD in math and he tells me it's like poetry. There's like, you'll, you'll find an elegant equation that you're just like, oh. Oh my goodness. Yeah, exactly. And that's the, when you talk to mathematicians, that's, it's the words that they just, it's not because they're trying to make it sound fancy. Like the words they use are things like beauty and intuition. And for them, it really, for us, it's not me anymore for them, I guess, really becomes these like deeply connected to these ideals. And they're kind of just takes you, you have to, you get obsessed with it. You have to go deeper and deeper. Right. So is that, is that kind of the state that you were in? Like you were just obsessed with kind of the beauty of mathematics. It's not like you were like, oh, I'm going to invent X, Y, or I'm going to make this revolutionary breakthrough. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I started as a pure mathematician and I had this, actually it was because of, of AI. This was way before the current AI revolution, but you know, going, I'm not going to totally age myself, but decades ago, <laughs> as I was going deeper into this pure math career, I was sort of seeing some of the changes happening in technology and AI being one of them. My thesis was like, actually, all this stuff is going to change the game across. It's going to change industries. It's going to change humanity. I don't know if math actually matters in the next 50 years. I mean, in some abstract way it does, right? But like, 
we're talking about rebuilding how civilization runs based off of the outcomes of these technologies. Like, I don't know if I can be on the sidelines and just watch that happen. I think I need to be part of it. Wow. Actually, why I, I switched into applied math was because I said, well, I already have all these skills. I may as well finish finish up this PhD, but at least need to make it a bit more applicable. So, And that actually proved to be super useful. This was pre-deep learning, but a lot of the sort of numerics that deep learning is predicated on, you can get a lot of those fundamentals in applied math because applied math is all about using GPUs to do big matrix multiplications, essentially, right? Even before right. that was deep learning. And now it's super cool with deep learning. <laughs> but you know, you get all those fundamentals from 20 years ago if you're just an applied mathematician. So you know, it ended up being a good investment at the time. Right, yeah, it all comes full circle now. So then you have this impulse or you're compelled to kind of participate in this coming wave of how we're going to reorganize our societies and live amongst one another. What is kind of the guiding light that then takes you from there? Because I mean, you have kind of a, a very interesting winding road into your founder journey. Tell, tell us a little bit about the delta between you uh, graduating and then starting Standard AI. Yeah, I definitely had a windy, you know, for me, I just love interesting projects and that's dangerous because I can, I can trip over an interesting project on the way to work and <laughs> I'm distracted for the next five years. Yeah. So actually, I when I left, I, I ended up, I, after I graduated, I, I took a, a research job at NYU doing math. And then that's kind of, I was only there for a few months before I, I really realized like, okay, actually, I, I can't go further on this, right? Like I need, I need to actually pivot my career now. Otherwise, I'm, I'm going to be doing this the rest of my life. As, as fascinating as it is, right? So I ended up quitting NYU. And one of my other passions happened to be video games. And I had this side project, which was this video game I'd just been working on for the last like 10 years. Wow. <laughs> yeah, just, it was just a hobby, right? But I told myself like, look, actually, it's a pretty good project. It's a pretty good game. This isn't what I want to build my career on. Like, I love games, but it's an awful industry. <laughs> Hopefully no one just take offense to that. Yeah, yeah, shots fired. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, this game's so close. I'm going to invest in it for the next few months. I'm going to finish it up, sell it. Maybe I'll get some revenue out of it. And then I'll use that revenue to self-fund my first real tech startup, which will be, that's actually how I'm going to get involved in this revolution that's happening because I'm going to, I'm going to do tech startups. So that, that project turned into a three-year project from that moment because that's the other awful thing about it. Sorry, I swear a lot. So you're going to hear me trying to... It's all good. No, this is a, <laughs> this is a safe place, Jordan. <laughs> that's the other shitty thing about games is it's just as much work as doing a tech startup, right? It's 100-hour weeks for years. Right. So you know, it ended up being this huge project. Actually, I met one of a couple of my... Well, I had two co-founders for that studio that are both here at Standard now too. Wow. So one of them is an old friend of mine. We grew up together. And then another one was this business guy I met basically the first day, the day I quit from NYU actually. So I had, had this game and I, always, I thought it was already pretty close to done. And uh, I was like, I don't know how to sell this. I have no business acumen whatsoever. I'm just like, a, I'm a math geek. Right. right? And I, I was in New York City. So I was like, there's got to be some place to like just meet business people. So I found this meetup, this video game meetup that same night. I'm like, all right, right. I show up. And it's, just, it's a big meetup. And I went around and just talked to every single person wearing a suit. <laughs> like, you look like you know business. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, you know, I just I showed them the game and there a bunch of people were like, this is sick. And my thing was, I wanted to sell it on Xbox. Like that was my thing. So I just, I was like, you know, anyone at Xbox? Because if so, let's talk. And all these people were like, yeah, sure. Here's my business card. Like back when business cards were a thing, I'll get you on. I know some people at Xbox will, will make it happen. This seems like a cool game. And one of these people was Michael. He's our chief business officer now, Standard. And flash forward a week after this event, everyone falls through. No one has a connection at, at Xbox. But Michael calls me up and he's like, hey, I've got a meeting in Redmond. 
with Xbox. Let's meet first to discuss our relationship, right? Like how, yeah, how yeah, yeah. am I getting out of this? <laughs> he came through, right? So he ends up getting sucked in and we, the three of the or three founders started this video game company together. And, you know, we went deep, we ended up launching on Xbox and a few others. And it was a trip. I, we learned a lot, right? You learn yeah. a lot doing a heavy project like that, but we didn't intend it to be a three year ordeal. Like it was, it was a, a wipe. Right. I'm sure it was a hell of a sprint. And it's like you're saying, you know, math really well. And you have this game that you've been working on, but like the whole business obstacle course and the negotiations, that was kind of your first run in with like the the business side of of the world, I guess. Is that fair? Oh, yeah. I'd never done a deal before. Yeah. Right, right. My first ever business pitch ever was to Microsoft because... Wow. And it was on a phone call. Actually, my (laughs) I didn't tell Michael this till after a few months of having known him, but... I was so nervous, right? Now I'm like, whatever, I'll do all yeah. Microsoft's on call, whatever. <laughs> but like yeah, at the yeah. time I was like, oh fuck. So I uh I was super nervous. So I took three shots of vodka <laughs> beforehand. I was just wow. like, I can't like I gotta calm my nerves. And it worked. Like I I was way more chill. <laughs> it was a good pitch, obviously, because we flew out to Redmond after that. But I told Michael that we are still pretty early in our our working relationship together. But I told him a couple months later. And he was just like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, that is hilarious. Before we got on call with Yeah, we hear about one shot of vodka, man. This is on three of them things. I know you were feeling good. Wow. Okay. And so you're on this crazy ride. What, I guess, prompts you to get off? You feel, I guess, maybe you accomplish the thing you set out to. You release on Xbox, you release on PlayStation, PC, Wii. You've kind of hit the success checkpoints maybe you're after, and then you're just like, all right, well, that was fun. Is that kind of... Yeah, yeah. So we we launched this game and we had a second game that we were starting on, but we sort of had the come Jesus moment of like, wait a minute. When we started all this, we we weren't intending to be a video game company. This was supposed to be a quick project to make some cash, to do a, a tech startup. Mm. Are we really going to... And you know, we were all passionate about games and we started developing you know, fans and, you know, community and, you know, we were going to game shows and just, you know, it was, you know, we became like a lifestyle. We're like, this is, we're into this. Are we going to do this or, or not? And, you know, we decided we're, we're not going to do it, right? It's not the right, it's not the, it's not the career we're, we're looking for. It's, it's not the right long-term bet for us. Right. So after we launched that, that first game, we, we spun down. I was super, bur- I, you know, I've never been so burnt out in my life. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> Insane. So we all just sort of like dissipated to the different corners of the, the world and chilled out for, I took like an eight month sabbatical where I just didn't do anything. And that's actually where I got back into, onto my feet was going to the SEC. So I was, I still wasn't quite ready to do a startup again, but this kid reached out to me from the SEC and he's like, Hey, we're doing this, this thing. We're starting a, basically back then you didn't call it ML, you called it quants, like from Wall Street, right? We're starting this quant group at the SEC and we're looking for just really smart STEM math people to just come help us build out this research team. And it's like a civic duty. Like we have to help regulate Wall Street effectively because it's the Wild West over here. <laughs> Wall Street has been quantitative for the last 20 years. The SEC needs to be quantitative too, right? And algorithmic just to keep up. And I was like, that sounds pretty cool actually. And it's government, so it'll be chill. And I can do that for a year. And do my civic duty, I'll be able to recuperate and then I'll go do my, my tech startup, right? So that was the pitch to myself. And then I, I show up and I thought I was just going to be doing research, but it became clear really fast that what they really needed was an engineering manager to not run the research, but to run the teams that was building the infrastructure and the tooling. So that's what I ended up taking on. So I, had, I was overseeing multiple different infrastructure and engineering projects. But of course, that's not a one-year project. So I ended up staying there for a long time. Yeah, I was about to say, like three years later. And, uh... <laughs> three years later. 
not only that, right? But I bring Michael back. One of the projects I was I was overseeing was was for high frequency data, which was like a, that was my boss. He was super. He came from HFT from high frequency, so you know that was like that was the golden child project, and it was the hardest technical project because HFT data is like insanely massive. So building infrastructure is super hard. So that was sort of the golden child project, and I was like, we need a great project manager for this. And he's like, do you know anyone? I'm like, yeah, I know someone. <laughs> so I, I bring in Michael. So, and you know, it's, it's kind of crazy, right? Cause like I have no finance background. I'm just a researcher, but that's kind of the right perspective you need. Michael's got no finance background, but he's just a hustler who can make anything happen. And he's a great project manager too. We did some awesome stuff at the SEC and, you know, the commission was super happy The you know, the chair and the other commissioners were like, this is great. This is what we, we need. So, you know, we got great funding. That team's still there, obviously, and still doing, doing really great. And, yeah, it was just a, it was a blast to, to start. It was kind of a greenfield startup within the government. Right. But it's also how I really started cutting my teeth on machine learning because we were, we were building out that, that ML infrastructure for the SEC. And that, that was kind of how we started getting into, into the next chapter, which was standard. Right. Yeah, no, that's interesting that this is where you finally get to start working on production ML using that math background for, yeah, like it, it is that kind of nice intermediary. Is this also your first like management? Foray, like foray into management, I mean? So the game studio was four full-time people and like uh-huh. 20 or so contractors. So there was some management piece to it then, yeah. which was, that was probably my first like real taste of managing and trying to inspire a team, trying to get people aligned. But then, yeah, the SEC was my first like, there's an HR department and... <laughs> right, yeah. Hiring, you know, it's not just me like finding someone on the streets like, you want a job? All right, let's do it hiring processes and you have different stakeholders, which I think is much closer to real life. Our stakeholders was the rest of the commission, the chair, et cetera. So you're balancing different needs. That was my first real taste of having to do all that. No, that makes sense. And thank you, by the way, for your civic duty as a taxpayer. We thank you. Yeah, yeah, we need it. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. And so you're cutting your teeth on the ML stuff. You're getting deeper into engineering. At what point are you, does, is this idea of standard AI conceived? What's going on in your life at that point that you decide this is the thing? Yeah. So I was just voraciously reading research papers to get up to speed on computer vision and NLP. Cause I, I sort of already knew that AI was going to be my, my next startup. And this was, you know, going back five, six years or six or seven years, actually at this point, you were starting to see these watershed moments in AI where like computer vision started, suddenly started working. Like you could start having an image classifier that did almost as well as a human on certain different tasks. And, we, five years before that, it was like unthinkable that that was going to happen. So we just had these like watershed moments where it's like, oh, this is this isn't ten years out, this isn't twenty years out. Like AI is here, it's happening. Like this is this is ground floor. If we're going to get in, we're going to get in right now. Otherwise, we're going to miss the ships. And so my first instinct was, well, then I need to become a deep expert in in AI. Right? I was already you know reasonably fluent, but coming from my academic background, it's not unusual to get up to speed on a new field, right? Like math is huge and you don't know everything. So like you're on this little narrow thing and then you find another subfield that you're interested in. So you're like, okay, well, I'm going to get up to speed. So what you do is you go, you print a stack of basically every research paper you think matters <laughs> for that new field, right? And you just do it. You just read all these research papers, right? So that's, that's what wow. I did. I had the stack this high on my, my desk at the SEC of all the latest ML research papers. And I was just I was just going through wow. reading one by one and just getting up to speed. And yeah, it was like just gave me more and more conviction that this was as I started grokking the field that this was really, this was really ready. So what I ended up doing was I, I started a, a bigger research paper reading group. 
Uh, so I invited like 15 or 16 people from the SEC, from FINRA, from some other industry groups. I didn't tell them that I was like doing this poaching ground, but I was just like, let's all get together. Everyone's, fat, everyone's doing ML and is fascinated by ML. So it's like, let's just start this discussion group. But as we're reading over the course of like a year, reading research papers and kind of going deep, I'm sort of steering the conversation towards, well, let's talk about applications, right? Like, what can we do with this? What's this going to make possible? So we had a bunch of ideas. And in the background, me and Michael are running like TAM analyses, <laughs> trying to figure out <laughs> what's the opportunity? How big is this? Yeah. While the research discussion group is thinking about feasibility and is it just interesting? Is it a cool problem? So, you know, we're going through a bunch of ideas and we finally, most of them are garbage, but we finally strike on, on checkout and we're sitting there running the numbers and we're just like, this is insane, right? Like the opportunity here is, is just absolutely unbelievable. And it's a cool technology and it looks like it is feasible, although it's going to be really, really hard, which actually was something we were optimizing for. You know, we wanted like, we wanted something that was going to have a high bar of entry, but not be too, too high. Right. So for us, we, we often call this like autonomous vehicle light because it's really hard, like AV, but not quite. Yeah. And then less regulation, less risk, which means we get to go. How about to say the regulation landscape alone is like a huge weight off the shoulders. Yeah. Especially coming from a, from a regulatory back, background. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you're leaving the SEC. You're like, we're going to run away from this now. Like, <laughs> okay. So no, that makes sense. Cause I was going to ask, you know, you're reading this stack, but in that stack, it's NLP, it's computer vision, it's recommendation systems. It's probably the whole gambit of ML stuff before you decide, okay, actually this branch, this application. And so you and Michael are kind of masterminding this thing behind closed doors. What is the moment when you realize the time is now? And how does that look? I mean, honestly, it was, it was Amazon. We had this idea for checkout and it was actually just a couple of weeks later, Amazon announced hmm. Amazon Go, which is their, their autonomous checkout product. And the discussion group at the time, they were all texting, you know, the news came out and they're all texting me like, oh, like back to the drawing board. We'll, we'll look at other things like too bad. And Michael's sitting here being like, let's go, <laughs> let's do this. Wow. <laughs> like, it validates the market. It's going to drive retailers to us, not to Amazon. It's going to make fundraising easier because it's a proof point that this technology is easier. So he convinced me actually. And then I was like, okay, well, yeah, you're right. This is, this is it. So that, that's when the real pitch started, which was... Your first pitch is not to investors, it's to your co-founders. Yeah. And so I was going to, you know, one of the questions we ask is, how did you find your co-founder? But it sounds like y'all had already been building this working relationship, building this kind of dynamic already between one another. I love that he was invigorated by Amazon stepping into the space that he was like, you know what? Nah, let's go at it. Let's do it. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That was his key insight for sure. And we actually had a big, we had a seven person founding team. Okay. Wow. How did that work? Was that made up of that group? Was it made up of like the gaming people too? Like how did that kind of come together? Yeah. Like I would say five of us came from that, that discussion group. And then we pulled a few other folks from sort of my, my past, uh, one of them from the gaming company and another one, another guy that I'd gone to a grad school with, but mostly it came from that discussion group. So wow. it was, we'd also been working together, which was great. I think there's no substitute for having a close working relationship for a co-founder because it's like, you're about to go to hell together. So <laughs> yeah, no, the trust, the trust required to take on that kind of thing is like center. You know, yeah, if there's, if there's no trust, you can't build anything. Yeah. That was what was great about the, uh, the one amazing thing from the game company is I wouldn't call that company a complete failure, but it was, it was basically a failure, right? Like, you know, we launched a product, we made some okay cash, but it wasn't a successful long-term business. Right. 
and it got real rough at the end, right? It was Yeah, the wind down is never easy, I'm sure. Yeah. And so like having having that like experience behind you and looking forward at this new endeavor, I guess like what was top of mind for you in terms of how to avoid maybe mistakes that you'd made as a leader at the SEC or at the gaming company? Kind of where is your head at as you're taking that big step forward with this cast of seven? Yeah, I mean, skill sets, everything is one thing that's top of mind, right? Like, especially when you're building something super complicated, like, you know, I think a, a traditional tech startup five years ago, it's like, well, you got, you got your tech guy and he'll build it or she'll build it. We got our business person with standard. It was like, there's no one person that can build this. There's no group of five people that can build this, right? Like we knew that this was going to be such a wide tech project and ops project. So I, I knew we wouldn't get all the DNA at the initial outset, but my design was what do we need to get to a first proof point? And then what's what's the killer team to do that? So, you know, having seven people, I don't I don't recommend this for all, all companies, but I think it's great having a big founding team because we didn't need to raise immediately. We could just start working. Yeah. We were working on our, you know, nowadays people show up with a deck and two or three people and it's they go raise a pre-seed without even having starting to work on the engineering. You know, that's or maybe that's starting to stop now that the markets are are in shattered shattered state. Yeah, probably less less common now, I'm sure. <laughs> but that was that was true two weeks ago. That wasn't true five years ago. You know, so we had seven people and we were deep in it working on the MVP while we were raising our our first seed, right? So that was super useful. And yeah, you know, you got to pick the right skill set. So we had some really hardcore engineers join up. And you know, having Michael on on team was amazing because he was out selling to retailers before we even had a wow. Written, right? So it's like, you know, yeah, you know, we had another founder who was, you know, super ops oriented, who was building out our lab spaces. And it was a team effort from day one. And that was cool. But, but I think the most important thing is it's got to be a team that jams. Yeah. You got to work together. There's no room for personality conflicts. And actually, I, I think I did an okay job of that. But my first startup didn't really prepare me because just by sheer luck of the draw, we all loved working. It was like such a harmonious, you know, we were in it. Right. It was so harmonious. But it was actually the SEC the first time that I learned about politics, <laughs> office politics, right. personalities. Not that the SEC is a bad place. It's a great place. It's just, you know, anytime you get thousands of people together, there's going to be some bad stuff. Yeah. I always say, where there are people, there are politics, you know? Yeah, exactly. Right. So that really taught me that I didn't want any of that in the company that we were starting. So we were pretty aggressive about trying to weed that stuff out and still are at standards. Yeah. That's an interesting piece. Like, how do you design against that because it's not a kind of happenstance that you're going to end up with one culture or another. It's like there's kind of deliberate decisions that you make or or maybe decisions that you don't know you're making, but you kind of already had this instinct of the kind of culture you were going after. I imagine obviously you picked this seven based kind of on some of that. How did you think about taking that forward? And did everybody already kind of know their station? Like, or was that a part of this? Was that a part of the build? Yeah, no, it's definitely part of part of the build out and exploration, right? Because you put seven people together and with a two person startup, it's like, okay, you're the CEO and you're the CTO or you're the COO and you know, whatever it is, right? Like that's a pretty easy conversation. Yeah. With seven people, it's not as easy. What's the title? What's the career path? That's not so easy because there's not seven C level titles that you you can give out at the beginning of a company. Even today we have four C's, C suites <laughs> at standard, right. right? So yeah, I think it's challenging to find the right structure for everyone. But I think if you pick the right people who are passionate about building something great, passionate about being part of the team above everything else, I think then you can make it work. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Shifting gears, I want to make sure that I give you an opportunity to speak on this because I think the autonomous 
checkout systems, there's, it tends to be a contentious space sometimes. And like, are people uh, afraid of it? Are people uh, very welcoming? Like, can't wait for it. What is a commonly held belief that you disagree with out there about autonomous checkout systems? Interesting. Yeah, we hear every now and then from people, retailers or potential shoppers or investors that they're worried that there's going to be this sort of concern factor of there's cameras on the ceilings for one thing, right? So this privacy angle, but also this like discomfort of feeling like you might be stealing. Actually, there was a, this SNL skit. I don't know if you saw a couple of weeks ago. Uh, actually, it was about Amazon Go, right? And it was, they were taking people shopping at the Amazon Go and they're like, oh, this is great. You can just walk out, right? And everyone's like, you know, happy. And then they were taking one of their friends who wasn't white. Oh, I think I did see this. This is Keenan, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And they're like, uh, I'm not so <laughs> I'm not so comfortable just walking out, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a good skit. But you know, I think it all, one it speaks to like we all have different experiences, right? Which you really got to take into account. But but yeah, like we definitely have heard from shoppers that they're worried, right? Like they're at this moment where they have to leave the store and they haven't paid. And we've been conditioned our whole lives that like, I'm not shoplifting. I I need to like make sure people know that I'm not shoplifting. But you know, as we're now live, we just launched our night store a couple of days ago. And you know, we're, so we're getting a lot of shoppers and we're starting to do interviews, like just chatting up. And the vast majority of them, that's not something they're, now that they've been through it a couple of times, now they're just like, yeah, this is great. Like I, I'm not worried about it anymore. And I think, for me, the coolest thing in the world is to see the natural way people are shopping now. I go, we have a store actually here in, in San Jose, SJSU. And you go and you just see people just shopping like, like it's normal, right? They go yeah, into the store, yeah. you take out your phone, you bump it, you grab something, you walk out, and you don't, you don't even see them hesitating, right? It's like uh, brand new technology, but they're already acclimated. It's just like, yeah, this is the way that you shop, right? Like, and yeah. for me, that's the coolest sense of satisfaction is, is seeing people's behaviors change. And seeing them just ha- adopt this as part of the way that they go about their day. Right. Because you are really normalizing a different shopping experience. Like this is not, this couldn't have existed prior to your technology. And yeah. so, yeah, watching the way, yeah, like you're saying, people are acclimating. What is something that you've tried recently in whether your product or your company that you were surprised by the result? You're entering not only a new industry, but you're scaling something to degrees that you have yet to encounter, like even on your own founder journey. What are, yeah, what's something that you've been surprised by? Oh man, so many things. <laughs> right. Yeah, it can be, you pick, your, pick the part of the company. You know, on the go-to-market side, I've been surprised uh, how receptive retailers are. You know, it's, not a, it's not an easy sales cycle for us, but the easiest part is, is getting people excited. Like every retailer wants this. And I didn't expect that. I thought retail was going to be a, a much slower adopting industry and much more cautious and, and skeptical, but it hasn't really been the case. They see it, they understand it. They know this is the future. It's still a slow sales cycle because there's, you know, you're ultimately changing the way that they fundamentally run their business. The most important part of it, which is how they get money, like they sell stuff. <laughs> this right. is how they get money. So it's definitely a high quality bar, but they want it. You can see that they understand it, which is super cool. So that was, that was really surprising. I think just how complicated the company is, is something that surprised me. When we started Standard, even a year in, we sort of we saw all the pieces already. We saw how wide the company needed to be to make this successful. And we kind of felt like we had our arms around it. But flash forward five years, we're 10 times bigger, 20 times bigger. And there's still all those same pieces there. But every single one of those pieces has to be executing at such a high quality bar to work. And that's just... It's not easy, right? Even if you know what that thing is supposed to do, you got to build 20 high quality teams 
to make one successful overarching company. Like that's that's a crazy amount of of quality that you have to engineer. Right. Whereas I think a normal startup maybe has got three or four of those teams where it's like you better have a amazing product and an amazing backend and maybe you're you know maybe you're a B2C so it's like amazing growth or amazing XYZ. But for us yeah. like 20 of these teams that all have to be super exceptional. Wow. And you're also balancing uh, hardware and software sides of the house too, right? Like yeah. how is that of making, yeah, how do you think about balancing these two sides of the house that like absolutely have to have harmony, but maybe move at different paces or have different needs at different points of the business? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you've got the hardware stack, you've got the your on-prem operations folks who are out there actually installing cameras and getting you know stores wired up. You've got your your machine learning teams, of course. You've got your regular engineering teams sitting on top of their outputs, your regular front-end teams, your regular product teams who are talking to shoppers and retailers and trying to figure out what this is, as well as you go to, you know, like the stack is so deep and all all of those pieces have to come together to deliver one single product, you know, ultimately. Yeah. I think the difference with the traditional companies, a lot of companies have all those pieces, right? Like ML is pretty common now. But often for a company, just taking ML as the example, the ML team is like, can I increase conversions? Right. Can I do a better A B test? Or if I can get this metric from X to X plus one, that'll have a positive impact on the company. So like they get to kind of in some they have to be cross functional and they have to kind of understand the business, but all they need to do is make an improvement to something. Sure. Whereas with us, the stack, the whole thing falls apart if any one team doesn't deliver some some core threshold. Right. And then deciding what all those thresholds have to be across the whole company is Oof. is a really challenge. <laughs> yeah. It's a really challenging yeah. task. Yeah. And as the business grows and as you kind of lean more on your leaders, there's more and more kind of things that fall outside of your control. Like maybe the, you have to rely more on influence. But I think this brings us back to the culture piece where like the culture that was kind of your thesis, I guess, for how they wanted this business to run and how you thought it would work. I guess I'm interested to hear like how much of that has played out in the way that you thought it would. And like, do you believe that you can engineer culture or is it something that you've kind of organically had to just roll with the punches to, to flesh out? Yeah, I think you can definitely influence it. And the most important way you influence culture is by who you who you pick to be in your team, right? Both from a hiring and, you know, the less savory part of of letting people go, right? Like adding and subtracting is the biggest way you can have an impact on a team. And it changes the way you organize the team too. You know, like I made this mistake early days in standard where I thought the system was, this company was so complex. The way that we were going to be able to scale was by having these really well-defined separated pieces that an individual exceptional functional leader could go, right? And like my job was to make sure that that was super well defined and encapsulated so that I could find that person with that context to run that and and do really well. And I would build a bunch of these, right? And that was a, a huge failure. <laughs> and what we have today actually is we still have great functional leaders, but what's amazing about them, and I think what's been driving standard forward is that they're super cross-functional. And you've got someone who might be on operations or finance or go to market. And sure, they're amazing leaders in that discipline, but they care deeply about the hardware and the machine learning and the product experience, right? And it's not just that they care about it, like they're meeting the company where they're at to figure out what's going on and to figure out how to integrate that back into their function rather than hoping that those things are encapsulated and presented to them correctly. That was really a big leap forward for us was bringing in those types of leaders. And then that's also been changing the culture at Standard where across the company now, people are getting better at being cross-functional, you know, whether you're a machine learning engineer or 
PM or operator, whatever it is, like everyone's getting, everyone's leveling up because they're seeing that from, from the leadership. Right. And that's affecting a huge change in the culture. And, you know, we're also being explicit about it too, right? Like this is what we want to see. So I think you can engineer it, but it's way easier to bake it in day one than it is day 100. You just need yeah. to be cognizant that you might get it wrong day one. Like the thing you're engineering for might not be just like any product, right? Your team yeah. is a product. You might optimize for the wrong things. You're going to have to pivot your culture at some point. And that is tough. Oof. Yeah, no, that's rough. In light of all this, what wisdom would you share with a younger Jordan? If you can go and talk to Jordan in 2017, ready to take this leap, what kind of, yeah, what would you impart upon him? You, know, you gotta, you gotta build the right team. You gotta build the right atmosphere. And there's a lot of trust that people put into leaders that they're doing that, that they're not just hiring the best folks, but they're creating the right, the right culture. And for me, like I've, my life, I'm, I've been a huge softie. <laughs> Is that the way I describe it? <laughs> you know, so it's really hard for me to have a hard conversation with someone right now. You know, you have to get to the point where you're letting someone go, right? But like giving someone really tough feedback is it's not easy, right? Yeah. But I think the most important thing is the whole company is depending on you to do that. You may say, I don't want to give this person this hard feedback because I don't want to have them have a bad day. But then what you're going to cause is everyone else is going to have a bad day, right? Right. Because maybe that person's being toxic in the worst workplace or is, just, is not holding water for the rest of the team or you know XYZ, whatever it is, right? So for me, the my personal journey has been leveling up there, not becoming an asshole, <laughs> but becoming a, an effective manager. Right. For me, it's been about the, having the harder conversations. Right. So it's like getting comfortable, just knowing that that comes with the territory that like, you're going to have to get comfortable having hard conversations, essentially. Like, yeah, it's super important. Right? I mean, like I'm a pretty extroverted person. So like I'm sympathetic. I love hearing about people's problems, helping people with their problems. I love picking up a shovel. I love giving coaching if it's positive stuff, right? Like, so, mm. you know, I was coming out of all of that being like, I'm a great manager. This has served me really well throughout my career so far. But as I've been growing a bigger team, really, this was a huge deficit that I've wish I really appreciated earlier on in standard that I was going to need to get a lot better at. Right. Wow. And then as a founder, what question would you want answered? Were there assumptions or things that did the way that you thought things would be? that are just totally not that way that, yeah, that if, if you could talk to the young founders out there taking their first at bat. Everyone always, always tells you it's people, right? Like every problem's one of our investors, he always tells me every problem's a people problem. And not in a bad way, sometimes in a good way, right? Like yeah. you need to achieve X, what are you going to do? You're going to hire for it, right? Or you're going to find the right person in your team to go tackle that. And I think really internalizing that is, is always hard, right? Especially because early stage founders are the types of folks who just go out and get shit done. And that's often the right thing to do, especially early on, right? But as you make that transition to a bigger company, you still need to just get shit done sometimes, but you got to trust people a lot more to, to do it for you. That's a hard transition. And I think the one thing that took me a lot longer, I knew that going in. And I think the thing that took me a long time to learn was it's not just about, it's not just delegating. It's not just find a person and trust, right? And getting comfortable with that. Sure, that, that helps. But like, picking the right person, delegating the right way, having giving back up when it matters, how much do you delegate? Like those are those are actually really tricky questions. And it's easy to just be like, either I'm going to do it myself or I'm just going to give this completely to someone to do. But that's almost never the right answer. You know, there's always this middle ground that you need to find that's different depending on the stage of the company and the, the person that you're working with. Right. And that's just a really hard, it's a really hard spot to find. <laughs> yeah, that definitely more art than science, I think, in that wow. 
Well, I, I know we're almost out of time. What are some things that you're excited about for the future of Standard around hiring, around vision, around fundraising, around rollouts? What's kind of going on in your world? Yeah, for sure. We're sort of this post MVP company now. You know, it's kind of crazy because we're we did our Series C, we had unicorn status, and in some ways, we're really like this garage company. <laughs> we're just barely building, just getting this thing out into the wild. But it finally is. Like we're finally out in the wild. We're in multiple stores now. We're starting to expand with our retail partners and get this into more and more stores. So you're starting to transition into this next type of company, which is really about growth and deployments and scalability and fundamental business metrics. And that's super exciting because we're building a brand new industry on top of the state-of-the-art technology. So building technology was fun. There's still a lot to build. So if you're listening and you're like an ML engineer, like we still have a lot of cool ML problems. But but I think what's even more exciting is you suddenly have this core nugget of, of something amazing that you then get to transform into a really industry-defining technology and product. Like that's that's really cool. So that's what I'm looking forward to. You know, we're doing all the like the normal company building stuff, investing in customer support, production support, product management, et cetera. Like this, it's all a little bit traditional, but with this flavor of how do we take a really innovative product and bring it to the entire world? Wow. That's really exciting. So yeah, I'm stoked that, and we're building a really amazing team. You know, for me, the coolest part of every day is just showing up and seeing someone who's a, an amazing cross-functional, but deep expert at something that I'm like, I read a Wikipedia article on once 10 years ago. Right. <laughs> right. You're just like totally wrecking it, kicking ass. And I get to help set them up for success within standard, but really they get to help teach me how to keep growing this company and taking it to the next level. That's amazing. That's amazing. Congratulations on all the success. I know none of it's been easy. It doesn't sound like this next wave gets any easier, but it only gets harder, but it yeah, gets yeah. Yeah, I know. And you're building and you're climbing them out with an amazing team. So it's been a blast. Last questions before I let you go. What is a book or podcast you're reading to listening to right now that is really inspiring? <laughs> I wish I had any. <laughs> was like, well, I don't have time for it. none of that. What about a TV show? What are you watching? What am I watching? Uh, the Marvel Moon Knight right now. <laughs> nice. nice. A little bit, something a little bit mindless. It's the only thing that lets me relax after work. Yeah, to relieve yourself a little bit. Okay, and then who in the world of startups would you most like to take to lunch? What's some who's someone that that you really admire out there that you'd like to pick their brain? That's a good question. We had this when we started Standard. We had this uh, company wide calendar. We we were doing three month sprints. We had almost every day planned, right? Yeah. And at the end of our first three month sprint. There was one day which was fundraise, and the next day was lunch with Elon. Is what we had written. Ooh. <laughs> That's a good one. We had everything on that calendar. We we raised. We didn't have lunch with Elon. <laughs> okay, so we'll keep that. If Elon, if you're listening, we yeah, need. I would definitely, I would definitely have a lunch with Elon. That sounds sounds pretty cool. I got some ideas for Twitter. <laughs> no man, yeah, no, I think we could probably find more to talk about there too. Yeah, but, but man, Jordan, this has been great. Appreciate you for coming on, and again, congratulations on all the success. Wishing you more of all of it, and humbled for Build to play the role that it has. No, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. Awesome conversation, and looking forward to catching up, catch up again in the future. All right, thank you cool. again. Cheers. Have a good one. The Gradients is brought to you by Build Talent. To find out more about us, head to buildtalent.io, and make sure to search for the Gradients and Apple Podcasts. Google Podcast, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Click follow so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And on behalf of everyone here at Build, thanks for listening. <laughs>